0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. Recording today from Millburn, New Jersey, I'm Alex Entner. Amanda Lotz is away this week. Today, Media Business Matters welcomes Mark Hobie to the podcast. He's the producing artistic director of the Paper Mill Playhouse, a major regional theater located here in Millburn, a town a short distance away from New York City. The Paper Mill Playhouse performs five full-scale theatrical productions each year to a 1,200-seat auditorium that is filled with subscribers and single-ticket buyers. Notably, the theater was awarded the Regional Theater Tony Award last year. Mark, welcome to Media Business Matters.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here talking to you today. So,
0: first of all, tell me a little bit about the Paper Mill Playhouse and your role within it.
1: Sure. Um, Paper Mill is one of the longest running regional theatres. It started the regional theatre movement back in 1938. Um, We've been continuously producing um, original musicals and plays and revivals. We're in our 79th year. We specialize mostly in musicals, large-scale musicals. We have a 1200-seat auditorium, only one performing space. And uh, we do five shows a year, kind of on a calendar year, school year from September to June. I'm the producing artistic director. I've held this role for about nine years, um, and I am in charge of everything artistic, programming the main stage, overseeing all of the education programs, um, overseeing the marketing, so that includes all elements of all of those pieces. There are people that obviously we have a, a director of marketing who works below me and a um, director of education but, um, and a director of production. But I'm heavily involved in, in all of those things.
0: When you plan a season of shows for the paper mill, what steps do you take? Like what's kind of your process for laying out what you're going to put
1: on well, the um, schedule? The model has changed here under my tenure, so we have some terrific relationships now with commercial producers and have become a launching pad for um, premieres that sometimes transfer to New York. Um, We have two shows currently running on Broadway, Bandstand and Bronx Tale, which Mm -hmm. had their world premieres in Paper Mills last season. Uh, sometimes we launch national tours. We have the National Tour of the Bodyguard that's running now. We've launched several national tours in the past. I remember
0: Les Mis. Les Mis, See, I saw Les Mis. Yes, yes so um, Little House got... on
1: the Prairie, and several in the past. And then also we sometimes premiere um, musicals that don't necessarily go on tour or to New York, but gain great notoriety like Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. which we partnered with La Jolla Playhouse in Disney Theatrical, um, which is enjoying productions all over the world. And then we've had other shows like um, Ever After or Other Josh Cohen that's had their major regional premiere here and are still trying to find their legs. So that's one avenue of programming. The other avenue is our own self-produced shows, plays and musicals, or co-productions with other not-for-profit regional theaters, which we do quite often And it's a reality of the business now, um, because I don't know many regional theaters that can produce an entire season on their own without some sort of partnership. So all of those factor into the decision of what shows um, wind up on the docket. Mm -hmm. And we start off, really, we have several lists. We have a list of shows we'd like to do. We have a list of shows that are um, potential partnerships, either with co-producing regionals or commercial partners. Mm -hmm. We have shows that we can afford to do. And then the big problem for us is um, acquiring rights because we're so close to New York City that any title – this would be a revival, obviously – but any title – That, obviously, if it's running in New York, we can't do it, but any other title that a producer is thinking of producing in a first-class way, either on Broadway or for a national tour, we get shut out of the rights. Oh, so
0: so if uh, another producer has an interest in it, you can't do it.
1: Yes, they will oftentimes lay claim to a project Um, like we've been pursuing My Fair Lady for a while we can't get it because there's a potential Lincoln Center production coming and when I started in the year 2000 the former administration said to me what's the show you'd like to direct and I said well the one I want to direct is West Side Story which we finally did last year it took 16 years to get the rights because when we originally asked in the year 2000, they said, no, no, we're thinking of a revival in New York. And then there was a tour. And then the revival finally happened in 2000-whatever-9. Mm-hmm. Ran there for, whatever, a year or two Not years. years. Yeah. and Then it went out on the road. So we were shut out of those rights. So it took 16 years to get the rights to do West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Now, other regional theaters all over the country could do it. But Why? we because couldn't. you're so close to New York. Or New York's backyard, yeah. so we couldn't do it. So it's a very complicated puzzle Of moving pieces and at the bottom line is the money angle you know Mm -hmm. how much money is it going to cost to produce it to produce the entire season and how much ticket income do we think we can bring in and Mm -hmm. that's the difference for that is what we call the spread and the spread is incredibly important to the overall budget for the organization Mm -hmm. so we have about a 19 million dollar annual budget But the production budget is somewhere between, it depends on the year, seven and nine and a half or ten ten million. And then we have to produce nine or ten million dollars in ticket sales. So Mm -hmm. it's... Is
0: that a challenge to usually reach that number or is that a number you normally get to?
1: Well, knock wood, um, we have done very well the last couple of years with the programming I've chosen and we've actually beaten those goals many times. And that is a combination of factors. It's choosing the right product. Mm -hmm. It's um, tight control on the expenses. Our production manager, Laura Green, is amazing. Our director of production, Laura Green, is amazing at um, keeping an eye on expenses and finding savings when we can without compromising the integrity of the show. Really, it's a guessing game. You don't always know what the audience is going to buy. You know, years ago, if you said, uh, We need a blockbuster musical. Mm -hmm. we could program Oklahoma.
0: In fact, you did program. I remember seeing Oklahoma here. (laughs) We
1: did, and we had a very big goal for that, and we missed it. We didn't sell. It didn't sell. sell. It sold. It didn't sell as well as we had thought. Mm -hmm. And I think people's tastes are changing, and we have now groomed our audience to look for exciting new projects. And actually, in many ways, it's easier for us to sell a premiere now than it is to sell a revival.
0: What do you think has led to that slight change that change in kind of in how you market yourselves? You know, I have a question later on which I can kind of put forward now about how, you know, next season is one of, if not your most ambitious yeah. I've seen you guys do. You yeah. guys are doing four originals.
1: Four premieres out of Four five, premieres right. and
0: one <laughs> revival Annie, Correct. very popular yep. kind of holiday yeah, yeah. sort of musical.
1: I love Annie, I'm directing it. It's and I I think it's a really well-constructed musical. It's a terrific mm-hmm. show. And I think, I call it the trifecta of um, holiday favorites because mm-hmm. it has children, a dog, and a Christmas tree in it. So all of <laughs> and those and things...
0: And FDR, I guess. And yeah. FDR,
1: yeah. All those things at one time are, are pretty much a home run, I hope. Yeah, next year is very ambitious. We have four premieres, two world premieres, and then two second stop um, mm-hmm. premieres. And... I think well what would the difference between a world just our
0: audience might not necessarily be completely in tune with Sure. Well, let's theater, talk so let, let's talk about the second the,
1: stop. Yeah, let's talk about the season next year. Next sure. year we're doing um, the musical version of the Honeymooners, which mm-hmm. is a world premiere. It has never appeared on any stage anywhere before. It has had workshops and in reading industry mm-hmm. Um, presentations in a studio but it's never had a full production so that's a world premiere Annie after that is a revival of course right and then in the winter slot we're doing a comedy a play called The Outsider which had a premiere it's actual premiere in uh, I believe it was Michigan uh, two years ago, under a different title. It was called Mm -hmm. something else. It was called A Real Lulu. Probably close to us (laughs) then. Probably, yeah. Has been rewritten, but you can't say it's a world premiere because there's been another production. Mm -hmm. Then in the spring, we're doing the world premiere of The Sting based on the Robert Redford, Paul Newman movie. That's never appeared anywhere before. And then in our final slot, we're doing a fantastic project with Jerry Mitchell and Bill Tabashki and uh, Dory Bernstein called um, Halftime, which had its... Premiere last summer, or almost—I guess it'll be two years ago now—under the title *Got to Dance*. Yeah. So again, reworked, uh, rewritten, uh, some new music, uh, and a new look at the piece. But it's had another production, so we call it. You know, mm-hmm. a second step. So how did we get to this point?
0: Yeah, what made you decide to push more into originals?
1: Well, what happened was um, in 2007 we had a, a crisis here and almost went out of business. Um, mm. The business model didn't work. There was very poor fundraising and there were a lot of, it was kind of the perfect storm of disasters all happening at one time. And the, I remember that's around it, when I started
0: going to Paper Mill. Yeah. The first show I saw here was Romance, Romance. Oh, that and, was and, almost
1: um, the last show. <laughs>
0: yeah, and then I saw Seven Brian. <laughs> (laughs) for Seven Brothers yes that
1: was the beginning of the renaissance yeah I was going to
0: say is that the show that you can give credit for saving Paper Mill in a way
1: um well or is that not I, I have to say that we were very very lucky at that time There was a moment where we had only $6,000 in the bank. We really were living penny to penny. And Romance, Romance was a show which I directed, which was a fantastic piece, but did not sell well. And prior to that was a wonderful production of um, Summer and Smoke, which starred Amanda Plummer and Kevin Anderson. Another brilliant production directed by Michael Wilson, but didn't sell tickets. And those two shows running at a shortfall. And then we had like a million and a half dollars in debt and a couple of other things crashed down led to a disaster, and the board was going to close the theater and the final performance of Romance, Romance. The lucky thing for us was, and what I was able to convince the board about, was that in order to raise money to keep the theater going, you have to have product on the stage. Mm -hmm. And Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was a co-production we were doing with Theater Under the Stars in Houston, and it was already there. Mm -hmm. So it was fully realized, costumed. It was the same cast. Everything was built. It was built. It needed no rehearsal. Mm -hmm. It was loaded on trucks and coming to Papermill, literally Mm -hmm. on the road. And they said, stop the trucks, which I didn't do. Uh, So we were able to load that in, in in the space of a week, get a brilliant production up and running. And it was beautiful, great dancing. Scott Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz's son, directed it. It was spectacular. And that was A perfect example of what paper mill does well and so it was a perfect opportunity for us to say you know if you want this kind of work to continue particularly in New Jersey and in this community you have to give money and so we were able to raise a million two immediately from little donations people $25 $50 $100 and then eventually it's a long story but um, a bridge loan and then a loan from investors bank and then eventually a a deal with the town that bought our property, and now they're our benevolent landlord. But anyway, what this is all leading to is, in order to continue, I knew we had to change the business model. And partnership was not a big part of Paper Mill prior to me coming in. There were co-productions and occasional, very occasional Commercially enhanced productions, but they were rare. Commercially enhanced meaning? Meaning that you're working with a New York producer or someone who wants the project to go further on, okay. and they bring money to the table. Perfect. So right. they help you, um, you know, shoulder the load of mounting the show. Okay. So I sort of said, okay, we have to partner with anybody and everybody we think is a viable commodity. Mm-hmm. And so I started actively seeking other not-for-profit regionals, other commercial producers, mm-hmm. anybody who had a project that I thought would be appropriate for Paper Mill in terms of size and scope and also might be an interesting project for our audience. Mm-hmm. Cuz it doesn't matter how great the work is if people don't buy tickets to it.
0: Right. You'll still go
1: out <laughs> of business. So, the first project that I negotiated for that was called Happy Days. Oh yeah, a new musical based yeah. on the television show. We worked with Gary Marshall and um, a uh, terrific producer in New York. That was the first show that opened the new season right after the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that was the first step in a long journey that was specifically plotted and planned. By myself and the artistic staff and the production staff, trying to get partners in so that we didn't have to shoulder the entire financial load ourselves. Right. Because we, I
0: mean, you're nine. You're already at seven to nine and a half without kind of yeah, any additional. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so
1: having to spend all that money was was nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. So. Happy Days led to launching the national tour of Little House on the Prairie um, with Melissa Gilbert. And then I was in New York City walking down the street and ran into a friend of mine who works for Networks, a touring company, literally bumped into him on the street outside Penn Station. I said, he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, hey, I'm looking for projects to bring to Paper Mill. Hey, what are you doing? He goes, hey, I'm going over to London to speak to Cameron McIntosh about launching the national tour of the 25th anniversary production of Les Mis. And I said, hey, would you want to do that at Paper Mill? He goes, hey, maybe I would. So we wound up um, launching that. Mm -hmm. And then what was fascinating about that was I was in talks with Disney about a project in the quiet phase. And Cameron McIntosh had been here with us for Les Mis, and he went into the Disney offices the next day, um, unsolicited, mm-hmm. and said, oh, you should go out to Paper Mill. It's a great place, and they know what they're doing, and they just you know, launched my production of Les Mis, and na mm-hmm. na So my phone rang the next day, and it was um, a guy named Steve Fickinger from Disney who said to me, wow, you have a big fan in Cameron McIntosh. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> he said, yes. He said we should work together, and we had already been talking about Newsies. Mm-hmm. So So Newsies was the project that
0: you had been talking about. That
1: was the one we'd been talking about, and that sealed the deal. And then Newsies really put us on the map. Right, because that went... It, it wasn't
0: expected to go to Broadway,
1: but no. it went to
0: Broadway, and it had a very successful run there. You're
1: exactly right. It was supposed to just go to licensing like High School Musical did. This and licensing
0: being licensing regional theaters and community theaters and high schools
1: putting on the show themselves. That's exactly right. So not every musical that's written and is successful has a life on Broadway. Right. So they were going to just send it to licensing because they had had so much demand because so many people loved the movie, and every camp from New Jersey to Arizona was putting on their their own unlicensed mm-hmm. production of Newsies. Mm-hmm. So um, they were putting that together. But it was so successful here that they were convinced to move to New York. So it moved to New York, ran there two years, then it went on tour for two years, and then they did a digital capture and release in the cinema oh, yeah. that happened this year. So for us, that was a huge project, following on the heels of Les Mis, that really brought a spotlight to our ability to work at an incredibly high level of quality mm-hmm. and to be a terrific host, which was always our goal. So that is what changed the business model. And at the same time, we were bringing the audience along. They used to fear or be wary of titles they didn't know. It was an older audience. It was, you know, people in their 60s and 70s.
0: So they would go to what they knew, not necessarily the That's new things that you might put on.
1: So we were specifically trying to attract younger audiences, family audiences. Mm-hmm. And so we were putting on family, you know, like... Annie is our choice for next year, and Mary Mary Poppins is playing right now. Right, that, you know, I'm a family man myself. I grew up in New Jersey, and the opportunity that I could come here and bring my 86 year old mother and my kids, that's an incredible opportunity. So we did that, and at the same time, I started to sprinkle in these new shows, Mm -hmm. but I specifically chose titles that I thought people would know or like like Happy Days okay you just say it's based on the TV show people they don't know the musical but they immediately know they're going to see Richie they they
0: know it's something there's something they know there
1: they know it's going to be Richie Potsy and the Mm Fonz and you know Mr. and Mrs. C and they don't know what the music's going to be but they know what that is so we chose shows like that and even brand new shows like Ever After, that was based on the Drew Barrymore film, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody knows that Drew Barrymore film. Ever I haven't After, heard of it before. Right. You guys did it. But when I tell you it's a new telling of the Cinderella tale, oh, okay, you go, okay, yeah. Cinderella, <laughs> and based on a movie. So mm-hmm. that's the way we brought people along. And interestingly enough, last season, our slate of shows was Bandstand. A Christmas Story, A Bronx Tale, Pump Boys and Dinettes, and West Side Story. Mm -hmm. And the most subscribed show you would imagine would be West Side Story because, you know, and it was. was Everybody knows West Side Story. But out of the other four, I'm going to pose a question to you, which is Bandstand, A Christmas Story, A Bronx Tale, or Pump Boys and Dinettes, a relatively unknown show. Which would you think was the next highest subscribed show? Ooh.
0: My guess, I feel like a Christmas story would be the trick here, so I think I'm going to go with a Bronx Tale.
1: Right. Well, you would think <laughs> Christmas Story at the Holidays Family Show, no, those mm-hmm. are sometimes our least subscribed shows. Really? But best on single tickets. Mm-hmm. Bronx Tale, you would think, yes, there's this major film and Chess Palmitari's one-man show. No, Bandstand was really? the second highest subscribed show, and I think that was because... In the opening slot, a world premiere, people were excited about it. Mm -hmm. And it sold over gold, did really well. And And now it's on Broadway. It's been a combination of things. And I I credit the audience and our patrons and our donors for, you know, really following along this journey with us and supporting us. And I think we've paid that back in the excitement of the projects that we've had here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we did A Bronx Tale, it was a year and a half ago that it was here with its premiere. I was standing in the... Aisle talking to our managing director, Todd, and I said, any regional theater in the country would kill to have any one of these creatives in our house. And right. they are all here. Like Robert Chaz Palminteri, Robert De Niro, Alan Menken, Sergio Trujillo, Jerry Zachs, and Tommy Mottola. And and also then as partners, the Dodgers, mm-hmm. you know, um, Lauren Mitchell and Michael David. That's, to have them all in one room at one time, that was unbelievable. So... We're working really hard, and I'm very conscious about trying to find shows with exciting um, artistic value, with great partners and great artists, and also that I think our audience is going to really like. Because as I said before, you can put on the greatest show, but if nobody comes, you know... (laughs) You're going to eventually go out of business.
0: Yeah, see, um, we we talked with a movie producer a few months ago, and he said, you know, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems in the movie industry is facing, getting butts in seats. Right.
1: And that's, you know, I think that's something we all face. And it's a worldwide trend with any kind of entertainment option, um, live theater, opera, concerts, um, certainly not pop concerts, that's a different Animal, but the classical concerts—it's mm-hmm. a major challenge, and I think film too, because there's so much available in the palm of your hand in your yeah. iPhone or yeah. on your iPad or on your computer. And so, what we ask ourselves this all the time: What is it that is going to get people up off the couch and to the theater? For us, I mean, and and you know this well. The communal aspect of going to a movie theater and watching a film, or better yet, for me, being in a theater, you know, with that exchange of energy from performers on stage, musicians in the pit, and it all happening live in front of you, you don't get that anywhere else. That's what we're highlighting. I used to say a couple years ago, I thought our slogan should have been, um, there was all this time when all these 3D movies came out. Everything Mm -hmm. was in 3D. And I said, well, we should do, you know, theater, the original 3D experience. (laughs) But um, that didn't go. I mean, people thought it was funny, but we didn't use it. um, Nice joke. (laughs) (laughs) best (laughs) slogan. But the thing is, uh, there is definitely something different about experiencing something with other people and the excitement of being in a dark room and watching something happen in front of your eyes, which will never happen the same way again. Theaters run performances eight times a week, but every show is different because the audience is different and things go wrong or they go right or there's a different performer on and I also think that musical theater has a unique ability to foster an environment where people can be sympathetic and empathetic to people who are totally unlike them. Mm-hmm. And the musical, the variety of acting and song and dance allows and welcomes people in in a way that's different than a film, different than TV, different than a book, and it's a communal shared experience. So there's something very basely human, like... You know, cavemen sitting around a fire telling a story—that's what theater came from, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: and, know, or even like the in Greece, you know, the the tales and the
1: right, of course. And history was an oral tradition, and mm-hmm. theater is a refined version of that. And so, I think it speaks to people at a very base level, at the bottom of your soul. And you know what it's like—you're sitting in a theater and. You know, the first time you heard Elphable sing, um, you know, Defying Gravity, <laughs> the hair stands up on the back mm-hmm. of your neck and you get a feeling in your stomach that you don't experience in, in other ways. Or, you and know, so, seeing
0: Audrey McDonald play Billie Holiday. Sure, right. Lady or, Day. That that I always keep going back to that as just one of my favorite moments. My dad and I were in the circle club on the stage and well, just seeing that performance. Or
1: her reinterpreting Carrie Pippridge in Carousel, right? That she, you see Audra, there's a reason she's won the most Tony Awards of anybody alive uh, or ever. Those kind of performances. And it's the same idea with people who go to opera or the symphony, that live performance is different than seeing a movie or watching it on TV because there's a gap and it's a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Right? When they see a film, they are showing you exactly what they want you to see. And when,
0: they are showing everybody the, the same thing.
1: Correct. And that's that's good in a lot of ways because you can control the quality and the, mm-hmm. be per, a perfectionist and about it. And still going
0: to see a movie in the theater, one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> Me too. I love
1: it too. But I'm saying there's something really exciting about the uncontrolled environment of a live <laughs> performance where anything can happen and often mm-hmm. does.
0: Anything can and will go, go wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But... I, I've been a fan of theater for a long time, and and there's just something to being in a room when you're at a good theater performance. Mm-hmm. There's just something—the way you put it. There's electricity crackling. There's banter between the audience and the and you're the right. actors on stage. There's, in, in definitely, a
1: way. there's definitely a conversation that happens at every live theater performance between what is occurring on stage and the audience, and we always say this, they say the the final character in every play is the audience because you can rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in a studio and go through tech, but you don't really know what you have till the audience tells you. They tell you, they tell you if it's funny, they tell you if it's dragging, they tell you if that musical number was great, they tell you by the way they act and react. And Mm -hmm. um, I was a performer for many years and a show that you do the same way every night Will be different because the audience is different. Mm-hmm. They're tired. They're wet. They had to wait online, you know, at the parking garage. Or it's sunny. They're in a great mood. You know, it's a really important um, element of creating live theater, especially mm-hmm. musical theater. And it's what makes it so exciting because you, as an audience member, are actually a participant. Okay. You don't sit back and be quiet and watch like you do on TV. You laugh out loud, you applaud, you stand up if something's exciting mm-hmm. at the end. You know, I mean, you are an active part of that experience.
0: Now, if if I may transition a little bit back into some more revenue financial sort of questions. So we talked in a little bit earlier in this conversation about the difference between subscribers and single tickets and how shows have different balances of Subscription versus single ticket. So let's kind of talk through some revenue streams a little bit, and kind of like, what are your more important revenue streams, and kind of how do single ticket buyers differentiate from subscriber buyers? I know those are kind of a couple loaded questions. I'm throwing yeah, at no, no. you at once. I'll
1: tell you that you want to, every revenue stream is important. Of That's, course,
0: it's <laughs> it's Im- it's a it, revenue stream.
1: It's. Im- Because Mm -hmm. by definition, a not-for-profit theater does not operate like a commercial theater. So we are actually a charity. We rely not only on ticket sales, but on donations. We rely on our patrons, on our our benevolent landlord, uh, corporations, foundations, the government, the state of New Jersey, the NEA, to give us money that we are uh, grateful for and also earn That supports our programming. And when I say programming, I don't just mean the main stage. We Mm -hmm. have, that's only half of what we do. We have a huge education department with programs that reach um, up to 40,000 students in the state of New Jersey every year. I was one of them at one point. (laughs) Yeah. We are a leader in the field of access and inclusion. We provide services for um, families with children on the autism spectrum and any patron who has um, a handicap or disability. We were the pioneers. We were the first theater to offer an autism-friendly performance in the country. We were the first theater to offer open captioning along with um, sign-interpreted performances. We support teaching artists that go out into the community, into underserved schools and provides arts to those those students there. And many of those services are free. So they have to be paid for, and the artists who uh, perform them have to be paid, and that is... Uh, through the benevolence of, of donors. So, we also have a theater school that's an income producing school, or it's, you know, you pay for your classes. But as a charity and as a community partner, a huge part of what we do is giving back to the community. So, in terms of revenue streams, we have certainly box office and main stage. And that comes in two ways it comes from subscription or single tickets. Subscribers are the lifeblood and the backbone of any not for profit regional theater because that is the money that you know a year ahead of time that you're getting. Like, we are selling subscriptions now and started back in February for next year. And we are, again, knock one, are bucking the trend in regional theater. Our subscriptions are actually growing. There was and a, the trend is a decline? The trend is a decline. And it's been a decline for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a decline, again, goes back to that Palm device, your iPhone. No one has to plan in advance what they're going to do. Not even do you have to plan this weekend. You can plan in an hour what you want to do, right? right? You can go online. You can figure out what it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. Now people are waiting till Friday night to decide what they're doing on Friday night. So who is going to plan a year or so in advance? To go year? see a musical. Right. What we have done is there was a time when we had about 12,000 subscribers. This year we're up to about 22, I think, and maybe more. I think in the next few years, we'll be at 25000 which is very healthy. What we're trying to do is offer incentives to people to subscribe. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, obviously, you you get a 40% discount on your ticket.
0: Right. So you make subscriber tickets cheaper than single. Absolutely. So
1: you're going to plan in advance, and you're going to commit and say, we're going to come to three, four, or five shows next year. We say, Mm -hmm. great, we appreciate that. We're going to give you 40% off the top. So subscribers actually get more than 40% off. Um, when you talk about dynamic pricing, which is something I'll get into with single ticket mm-hmm. buyers. And we offer subscribers flexibility with, you know, you can change your ticket as much as you want. You can move your date, things like that. Right. So single ticket buyers, sometimes they will buy a ticket to one show and never come back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll buy shows multiple shows in a season, but they don't mm-hmm. want to commit to the whole season. Right. Uh, the thing about being a single ticket buyer is, oh, also subscribers get to pick their seats. You sit in the same seat every time. Ah, yeah. Single ticket buyer, you have to take what's available.
0: Mm-hmm. And what the subscribers don't take. Exactly. Right? And
1: all when you look at a, a seat map and look at where the subscribers are, all the really good seats are taken by, are taken by, subscribers. by subscribers, right? <laughs> so, and they should. They're your family. So a single ticket buyer, you know, has less availability. You have to uh, choose what's left over. And also, when we have a really hot ticket, when we have a show that's selling really well, we do what's called dynamic pricing. Mm-hmm. and uh, Most regional theaters um, subscribe to this as well. And some um, Broadway producers Yeah, as well. oh, Broadway producers big time. And what that is, is it was born out of the airlines. So uh-huh. you know when you buy your ticket, if you're buying a ticket for next Christmas, you're Tickets cheap, right? Mm-hmm. But if you want to go tomorrow and there are less seats it available on the plane, it can be three times, times the cost. Yeah. So what we do oh, is when our shows start selling out, we raise the ticket price. Oh, wow. So uh, a single ticket that's advertised, I, our top ticket price is about $100 now. But if you come to a really incredibly exciting sold-out performance, you might pay $130. Like dollars
0: what you're doing with right. Mary, Mary? I was Poppins, looking at Mary so. Poppins tickets, and Mary
1: Poppins is very popular. Um, Bronx Tale, you couldn't get a ticket to, mm-hmm. you know, um, things like that. Then, if you say your subscriber paid forty percent off the hundred dollars, so they paid sixty dollars a ticket, or somewhere and there, can be anywhere between forty-five and sixty dollars. And the the dynamic price single ticket is one hundred and thirty. Look at the huge discount you're getting. Yeah. So that's one income stream. The other income stream is, as I said, um, contributed income and donations. People who benevolently and kindly give because they believe in your cause, which could be to produce great um, musical theater and plays, which is part of our mission, or mm-hmm. it could be to serve the community by providing arts to um, students and underserved schools in the area, or it could be um, the access and inclusion being a totally open environment for people who are have challenges to come in and have an experience. So right. any of those ideas are what people will support, but that mm-hmm. takes a whole team of people actively pursuing that. So that's a revenue stream. And then the third revenue stream for us comes through the commercially enhanced productions, which mm-hmm. is that a commercial producer who has interests in the product will give money specifically to the show to help realize the production on stage. Mm-hmm. They may pay for the set. They may pay for the costumes. They mm-hmm. may pay for additional rehearsal time mm-hmm. so that the show can be realized. Because they're gonna walk away with those things. And then they're gonna take them and, and they're gonna take where them somewhere next. else. Yeah. And then uh, sort of a subset of that is royalty income. So when newsies ran on Broadway for two years and then on tour, every week papermill got a check mm-hmm. because we were the Original for producer. The original producer and lent our artistic expertise. And also we put money into it too. Mm-hmm. So we're like an investor and a producer, co-producer. And so we enter into the royalty pool. So we get money on the back end And do you that. do
0: that for all your productions that any, move forward?
1: Yes. Any premiere or any major um, kind of revival that goes on tour, mm-hmm. um, we participate in at varying levels. Obviously, you know, shows that you are the world premiere, Mm -hmm. producer of your a correct, and they always have a limit. They're not forever. So, but that is incredibly helpful for Mm -hmm. a regional theater that is trying to do as much as we do.
0: That's fascinating. What are the biggest challenges for being a regional theater in this day and age? That you guys face.
1: Um, I think it's what's always money. I mean the, right. the we are unfortunately we like many of the other entertainment options are the first thing to go out of people's budgets when they are in a crunch. So if the stock market's bad, if taxes are being raised, you know, where do you look to find that money? Well, you go to you eat out less, you see less movies and shows, and you donate less money. So yeah. You know, we were very, very dependent on our uh, patrons and donors. Very, mm-hmm. very dependent. And that's always going to be a challenge. Also a challenge, I think, for us is we operate on a very large scale. The quality of what you're going to get here uh, when you visit Paper Mill in terms of performance and also production uh, rivals New York. Mm-hmm. And there's a cost that comes to that. We are a fully union house. Our actors are union. Mm-hmm. Designers are union. You know, the stagehands have a union, the musicians are a union. So all of that comes at a price, but that's what allows us to deliver the high quality we do. And then for us, the blessing and the curse is being outside New York City. We're so close to New York, so there's several challenges in that. Well, the advantage is we get these incredible, you know, we get get, Jerry Zaks, you know, we get uh, Broadway uh, designers and choreographers and directors and actors who like to work here for a very, you know, meager Mm -hmm. salary, um, but they get to sleep at home. So in their own beds. Uh, so that's great. But then the the other hard part is that you're competing with New York. You're competing with New York in terms of your audience. You're competing with the New Jersey area and, and especially the uh, Newark, which is, is full of need. The people we approach for money to support us are also being approached by other worthy organizations. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge challenge. You know, if we were out in the middle of nowhere we'd be a Mecca for people in many ways, in terms of donations and in terms of um, purchasing tickets. But there are many, many other people calling at the doors of the same people we are, asking them to come either give money or spend money. Right. So that that's a challenge. And I think that running a theater in general is very challenging. It's always... You're always dancing on the edge of... Uh, I don't want to say disaster, it's not <laughs> disaster, but... There's, it's not a sure thing. Mm-hmm. The arts are not a sure thing. Right. So they never were. They never
0: will be. But nobody knows. Um, no it's a common common academic trend. Is right. nobody knows what's going to work in right. entertainment.
1: And you hope that people realize the value of having the arts in their lives and in their community, and that they'll support that. And we've been very, very blessed to have a community, a town of donors and patrons that support us. So that's mm-hmm. that's what's kept us going. But when we become not relevant to those people, that's when paper mill will go away. So Mm -hmm. we have to listen to them. We have to uh, provide for them. We have to be a very vital part of their lives in all Mm -hmm. aspects. And then we will continue to live and survive. Um, And that's what we have to do. That's what life is.
0: Yeah, when I talked to Russ Collins um, of the Michigan Theater, which was the nonprofit or uh, art, art house movie theater that we spoke to, he talked about how the Michigan Theater is, quote, community based, mission driven. Or yeah. that was kind of the adjective he used to describe how, what he does
1: That's over exactly at the Michigan. Right.
0: So, how would that phrase apply to the work Paper Mill
1: does? That's exactly what we are. Yeah. Any successful not for profit needs to be community directed and mission driven. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a very specific mission that you believe in and that you can convince other people is worthy. And I think our two-pronged approach, which is creating and sustaining uh, great musical theater and experiences and also educating um, students, mm-hmm. providing the arts to underserved communities and providing access and highlighting inclusion for people of all abilities and disabilities um, is incredibly Worthy and I think incredibly life affirming, life changing, and life affirming. And I think that's why we're enjoying um, the success we're enjoying right now.
0: And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about your Tony Award that oh, you yes, guys won right, uh, which is- last year.
1: Last year, and is only we're enjoying the last couple of days of that because um, another Tony Award will be uh, given to original theater. I think it's Dallas Theater Center. I think. Oh wow! In um, on this Sunday, no, incredible. I mean, what an incredible honor! Something that you dream about and you can never really expect. You can't mm-hmm. lobby for it. It's. You know, the uh,
0: Tony they, committee gives it out.
1: They it is bestowed upon you. Um, and what I found incredibly humbling about that experience was that. It was a great recognition of the work we're doing on our main stage and the partnerships we've had with a lot of commercial producers in New York, but really it also highlighted all of our outreach, access, and education efforts, and I think that's been the sort of undersung or less flashy part of what Paper Mill does, but actually the most worthwhile thing that we do, which is giving back to the community and to the students of this area. And so... Being able to say we're the Tony Award, you don't say winning, but you're the recipient, theater, that we're the recipient of the Tony Award, really, um, and it will always be that. Mm -hmm. We will always own that Tony Award, and it's displayed proudly in the lobby, and it belongs to every artist, crew person, you know, designer patron donor um, student everybody staff member board Mm -hmm. member everybody who's been a part of paper mill over our last 79 years owns a little piece of that tony so we're happy to have it out in the lobby where everybody can see it and take their picture with it yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) is that something you see a lot of people doing taking the picture with the tony
1: well we often take it out of its case so that people can do that you Mm -hmm. know we had a gala recently we brought it there let people take photos with it. Um, the staff and the board and the crew have all done that. And mm-hmm. whenever there's an opportunity, I like to allow people to do it because it's exciting. It's, ex- yeah. I was thrilled to hold it in my hands heavier than you think. <laughs> and, um, you know, why not share it? It's good news. Why not share it?
0: Yeah. And when you look into the future, what are the goals you would lay out for Paper Mill?
1: There are a lot of things. I... Would love to continue doing the work we're doing on the main stage, which is producing great and innovative revivals and also being a host for world premieres of, of new shows. That, I think, has to continue. It's the new identity of Paper Mill. I'd like to develop a uh, more intense uh, developmental program Mm -hmm. here. So we had a leg of experimental works that didn't have to go right to our main stage, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a second performing space. So we need to build that. Uh, We need to expand our education department. We're bursting at the seams. And, you know, Mm -hmm. ideally we'd like to build a school. We'd like to be able to teach and uh, provide those experiences for more students. We'd like to expand our board. We'd like to have, we have great, exposure here um, on the East Coast and I'd like to get more deep involved with our immediate community in mm-hmm. Millburn, Short Hills End in New Jersey but also continue to grow the national and international prominence of the theater. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that Hunchback is running in um, Tokyo with our name on it, that's spectacular. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's a production in Germany now mm-hmm. and the, so I'd like to continue that but I think there's there's plenty of room for growth. It just requires more support and more staff where mm-hmm. we are... Maxed out in terms of you know, work hours for the staff we have. But now's the time. And we're in the middle of a strategic plan where we're examining all the strengths and challenges of the organization. Our board is growing. Our donor base is growing. Oh, we also need to renovate our theater which was built in 19, I think it was 80, opened in 82 and mm-hmm. really hasn't been renovated since then. And the visual and comfort experience of arriving and spending time here at the theater needs to match the product on stage. Mm-hmm. The product we've been able to, you know, um, bring up very, very strongly, but, you know, it costs millions of dollars to renovate an auditorium. Especially so an
0: auditorium that's, know, that's this a size. full-size, 1,200-seat yeah. theater.
1: So we're going to start that process probably ne- uh, not this summer, next summer. Because mm-hmm. you have to renovate it
0: during the summer, right? Yeah.
1: We only have a small window of time. Otherwise, you have to shut down. And there's so many things to do. You know, we need new seeds. You have to renovate the bathrooms, mm-hmm. open up the lobby. So we're looking for support for that. And we're we're actively um, planning that now. All so right. That's it. Great.
0: Mark, thank you so much for joining us on Media Business Matters.
1: Thank you. It was a great talking to you. And I wish you luck.
0: And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com, which has a full archive of our episodes and more information about the show. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store by going to play.google.com slash music. You can learn more about the Paper Mill by going to papermill.org or by following them on Twitter at paper underscore mill. You can find Amanda on Twitter at drtvlots, and you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.